Bibles, and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, where we began last Lord's Day, considering the commandments which directly relate to our worship of God. Last Lord's Day, we considered the first motive that God gives to us as His people in obeying His commandments, and particularly His commandments as to how we are to worship Him. That first motive that God gives to us is summarized in the very first verse, chapter 20, and God spoke all these words. God is the Sovereign Lord and Creator. The first motive for obedience. He is the Sovereign Lord and Creator. We must, therefore, as His creatures, obey Him out of fear for who He is. We must tremble before His presence as even the children of Israel did as He revealed Himself from Mount Sinai lightning and thunder and the shaking of the earth beneath. God is not one to take lightly. God is to be taken seriously. And we consider this Lord's Day the second motive that we as God's people must have in obeying the Lord God. And that is that God is the gracious Savior who has redeemed us from bondage. Thus we must love Him and obey Him. And this particular motive, the Lord would break our hearts before Him. That He would show us that He's not simply a God to be feared, but He is so gracious and has been so faithful and compassionate to us, merciful, that we would be brought to shame at how we have disregarded His commandments, spurned His love, and to follow Him. Charles Bridges, I think, summarizes very well how the fear of God and the love of God are joined together and how they should be joined together in our lives in these two motives that we have uh, mentioned. He says... His wrath is so bitter and His love so sweet that hence springs an earnest desire to please Him. His wrath is so bitter and His love so sweet that hence springs an earnest desire to please Him. That is what God, I think, is communicating in these two motives. One day as Jesus was passing through a frontier area lying between Samaria and Galilee, he entered the outskirts of a village and there met him ten men. Not uh, ten ordinary men, but ten men who carried the very dreaded disease of leprosy. A disease that made them more than any other disease a reproach and a shame to their family and friends. A disease that according to God's law cut them off from the temple 
from the sacrifices, from the feasts, from the priests, from the people of God. Leprosy like sin, which it pictures, which it's a type. Separated them from the holy things of God. Leprosy put them outside the camp. It made them, as it were, untouchables to all. Outcasts of society. Strangers to all. They must beg for all that they needed. And as outcasts, they were required to remember from the Old Testament. They were required to rend their garments. To uncover their heads. To cover their lips. And from a distance, they were to cry out, unclean, unclean, to anyone who would approach them. They were in a very real sense, dear ones, the living dead. The living dead. Leprosy was a cursed bondage that lasted as long as life itself. Unless, unless, God brought deliverance. Is it any wonder that on this particular glorious day that these ten lepers that we read of in Luke 17, this Lord's day, that these ten lepers lift up their voices shouting from a distance, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. In other words, set us free from the shackles, from the bondage to which we've been enslaved. No doubt what was going through their minds was this. Could this be finally the day of deliverance from this bondage? Jesus doesn't hold a prayer meeting on the spot. There's no altar call to come forward and receive their healing. There's no emotional spectacle designed to draw a crowd together. Jesus simply commands the ten lepers, Go and show yourselves to the priests that you have been cleansed from your lepers. Go! Well, they obeyed and ran off. And as they ran, the scripture says they were healed miraculously set free from that bondage. Now nine kept running. But one when he saw that he was indeed healed returned and fell on his face before the Lord and poured forth from the deepest recesses of his heart incessant thanks to Christ for what Christ had accomplished in his life. But were there not ten who were delivered, who were healed? The Lord Jesus asked the one who returned. Weren't there ten who were set free from their captivity and bondage to leprosy? Were the nine? Jesus asked. And Jesus says, Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God? Except this Samaritan, this foreigner, 
this one who is outside the pale of God's covenant? Here was the purpose of that miracle. It's to demonstrate the power of Jesus to deliver people from bondage to not only physical suffering, but even more importantly, to demonstrate the power of Jesus to set people free from the bondage to sin. But even further than that, this miraculous healing demonstrates the difference between those who are only duty-bound to obey Christ. Go and show yourself to the priests who fulfill the external uh, commands of God as opposed to those who are not only duty-bound, but are love-bound to obey Christ, the one who returned to give thanks to God because he had been set free from bondage. Well, I can guarantee you that thankful Samaritan obeyed the Lord's command from a profound sense of love for Christ that the other nine did not possess. That's true obedience. Not simply duty-bound to obey, but love-bound to obey. You see, all people everywhere, as we said last Lord's Day, whether believers or unbelievers, whether clean or unclean, whether lepers or not lepers, all are duty-bound to obey the law of the sovereign God. But you and I, beloved, you and I, who were once all lepers spiritually in the sight of God, and who have now been miraculously and mercifully set free from our leprosy and been healed, are not only duty-bound to obey the law of God, but we are love-bound to do so. Bound to do so by the unbreakable cords of God's infinite and undeserving love and mercy. You know, there are many in churches across the country who merely out of a sense of duty externally keep the law of God who may go all through all of the right forms as it were of worship they believe they are keeping God's law they have an external righteousness about them but like the Pharisees of old the Pharisees of Christ's age they are simply going through the motions motivated by some sense of duty yet void and empty of praise and worship and love to Almighty God their hearts so often and we must be very careful that we do not fall into the same trap whose hearts are cold and indifferent before God when we come before Him to worship. We're simply, as it were, punching buttons. Kind of in the computerized age, it's very easy to simply to push buttons and to get what we want up on the screen. But we must be careful that we do not enter into worship of a holy God, a gracious God, simply pushing buttons and going through the motions. 
as I mentioned last Lord's Day, that's legalism. It's not legalism to obey God's law. It's not even legalism to obey the details of God's law. But it is legalism to simply go through the forms of obedience. That is legalism. A form of legalism. For the legalist, his task of obedience is a great burden, a drudgery to him. It's a, a task at times to obey God may seem like it's more than he can bear. He seldom, if ever, is willing to make great sacrifices for the Lord. And he's either going around feeling like he's carrying this unbearable burden or he's boasting about the great feat that he's accomplished in obeying God. One extreme or the other. But that is the way that a legalist would respond. He grumbles in his heart about what God calls him to do. Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 warns the Pharisees of that time and all Pharisees of this time concerning this particular heresy. Matthew 23, beginning with verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you, you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Beware, dear ones, beware. We must continually set a guard upon our hearts that we do not fall into that trap, into that sin. The keeping of God's law, the worshiping of God, is not law-keeping or worshiping at all if it's simply kept from a sense of duty. It must go beyond that, from a sense of love and gratitude and thankfulness to the Lord. An illustration, I think, that would be very appropriate as to the difference between one who is simply duty-bound to obey the Lord as opposed to one who is duty-bound as well as love-bound to do so. I think as parents we can identify with this. Many times we, we ask our children to do something. And sometimes we have to stand over them follow them right to the very place where they are to perform this duty. Go and clean your room up. Unless we are standing there in the very presence and perhaps even with a paddle in our hand had to give them squats on their way. They will not obey it. But out of a sense of duty, finally, they will obey. 
Now how different that is from those times in which our children, when asked to do something, have a smile on their face and cheerfully say, yes sir, yes ma'am, okay mom, okay dad, I'll do that. Now you've asked them to do identically the same thing. It's the same children. But how love dramatically transforms obedience and law-keeping into something beautiful. Now we know that very practically. Or husbands. Uh, when your wife says, Honey, there's a leaky faucet there. Uh, could you please uh, uh, fix that? And uh, you wives know the difference between when your husband gripes and complains all the way to the leaky faucet to finally get the faucet repaired. He gets it done. He does the job. But you don't take a whole lot of pleasure in the fact that he did that. But if he sees the leaky faucet and you may ask him or maybe he even beats you to the draw and he repairs it because he loves you. What a difference. We all know that experience. Well, God is certainly no different. God loves to see within our hearts, in obedience, a sense of gratitude and love and thanksgiving. Not simply going through the motions. The preface to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 brought God's people Israel face to face with this same issue of which I've been speaking. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. And we could almost insert at that point of therefore. Because I am the God who has delivered you, I give you these commands. Obey me out of a sense of love because I am your Savior. Not only the Lord who has a right to your obedience, but I am your Savior. Therefore obey me. Keep my commandments. see again, I hope I will not become uh, repetitious to the sense, to the point of grating on your nerves, but repetitious in the sense of indelibly impressing upon your mind this truth. You see, they were not simply duty-bound to obey Him, as are all nations, all people, but they were love-bound to do so because God had delivered them from Egypt out of the house of bondage. I think that as you look at this concept of leadership that God gives to us that God is Lord and God is Savior and you seek to apply that concept of leadership in other areas of leadership whether in the home whether in the church or in the civil government, I think that we 
If we can keep these concepts in mind as leaders, wherever we may be a leader, I think we will have the appropriate balance. Let me illustrate. I think that God calls leaders to exercise authority. That would be on the duty side. Authority. And yet, in our exercising of authority, He calls us to exercise service to others. Authority and service. He calls us to rule. He calls us yet to, in our ruling, to be servants. Those who are in authority are to be feared. And yet, those who are in authority, who are in authority, ought to extend mercy. Fear and mercy. Keeping those in balance as they are with God. There is to be a transcendence and yet an eminence, a sense of being far and separated because leaders represent God. And yet, God has become very near to us through covenant. Well, we should be near the people and our hearts should be tied together as one, knit together as one for those over whom we rule. There's that sense of justice and yet the that contrast that beautiful beautifully ties in together of grace so as leaders I challenge each of you who have any authority look to God as to how he leads his people God becomes our pattern and our example in maintaining those truths those virtues Thus we might say, as we look at the preface to the Ten Commandments, that the exodus from Egypt is, in a sense, the gospel for Israel. The exodus, the deliverance from bondage, is, in a sense, the gospel, the good news for Israel. It is their redemption as a people which takes place even before the giving of the law of God in Mount Sinai. Israel had formerly been slaves in Egypt, subject to the cruel authority of Pharaoh. However, their liberation from Egypt brought them under now the loving authority of Jehovah, their God the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who now even brought them into covenant union with Himself. Though they had been idolaters, He brings them unto Himself, and they become His bride. They who were idolaters, rebels. Not because they were more righteous than the Egyptians. Not because they were more numerous uh, than the Egyptians, not because they were more powerful than the Egyptians. Deuteronomy chapter 7, which we read earlier, says that he set his love upon them. He chose them because he set his love upon them. The reason he chose them is because he loved them, not because they were righteous. 
Because, as we will see, even while living in Egypt, they were idolaters. They brought their false gods along with them. Can you imagine? God delivers them from bondage. And what did they tote along with them as they leave and go into the wilderness? But their false gods. Yet God establishes His gracious covenant with them because He has become their God and they have become His people through covenant. Jehovah did not first give His law to Israel and declare, here's my law, keep it completely, and then I'll see whether I want to rescue you from bondage. Whether I want to save you from the house of bondage. He did not say, keep my law first, and then I will rescue. He rescues them, delivers them, and saves them, and then says to them, now sir, obey what I have commanded you. You really see in this, dear ones, that the issue uh, that is brought to our attention in the preface is that issue of covenantal love that we are to obey God. We are to worship God because of His great love for us that He has extended to us. It is really covenantal love, the love of a husband for a wife. That kind of love that that God has for His bride, Israel. Because God delivered them from their bondage and brought them to love and with himself he now commands them you shall have no other gods before me because I have redeemed you you shall have no other gods before me that idea that concept and we'll be looking at that particular commandment in the the near future but let me simply say this about that commandment God is not saying you shall have no other gods in the sense I want to be the highest as it were on the totem pole but you're allowed to have all these other gods. I just want to be number one amongst all the gods. Kind of in a pantheon of gods and I'm just the number one god. That's not what he's saying. He says you shall have no other gods in my presence. Now where is God's presence? God is everywhere. That means you are to have no other gods, period. You are to worship me alone, for I am your husband. And it's the idea that to serve other gods is to commit adultery in the very presence of God. As if a husband or a wife would commit adultery in in the presence of their spouse. It is that kind of shame that God says that we do when we worship other gods. And it's on the basis of His covenantal love to us as His bride that He says, have no other gods before me. Worship no other, because to do so is spiritual adultery. We find this concept, dear ones, associated many times the book of Deuteronomy especially God's delivering his people from the house of bondage with not worshipping other gods turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 
Deuteronomy chapter 6. We just looked at a few of these places. 6.10. Deuteronomy 6.10. And it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, when you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And notice verse 14. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around. Again, because God has shown covenantal love, is taken you to be His bride, you're not to forget Him and go after other gods and thereby commit adultery. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments, His judgments, and His statutes which I command you today. Lest, when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And again, we find in verse 19, then it shall be if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods. Tie <coughs> together again. God is continuously reminding His people that they're not to serve other gods. They're to follow His commandments because He has covenanted with them. I like to go on several other passages, but I think that that's sufficient to illustrate the connection that we find in the Decalogue God says He has delivered us. Therefore, we are to serve Him alone, no other gods. Well, let's be perfectly clear about Israel's grave and desperate condition in Egypt. It's true that they were delivered from a very cruel tyrant in the person of Pharaoh, a tyrant who sought to destroy them, kill them, eradicate, annihilate them. However, they were also delivered not only from a cruel tyrant, but they were also delivered from idolatry. I alluded to this earlier. For the land of Egypt was filled with all kinds of idolatry, which Israel freely drank of herself. Israel, dear ones, was an idolatrous nation. In fact, Joshua commanded Israel before his death, put away the gods your fathers served in Egypt. Joshua 24, 14. Moses declares concerning Israel in Deuteronomy 32, 17, they sacrificed to demons, not to God. To God they did not know. 
and Aaron made a golden calf, you remember, for the people to worship. Where in the world did they get an idea of a golden calf, of all animals? Well, obviously from Egypt, the Apis bull, which the Egyptians worshipped. Uh, in fact, you might say that the plagues that were brought by God upon Egypt were directed toward the very gods which Egypt worshipped. The Nile River, the, the sun in, in darkening the sun, the various insects, cattle. I mean, the Egyptians had gods and created gods out of all of these things. And apparently God was saying... He was the one true living God. These were false gods. And he will not share the hearts of his people with other gods. It reminds me of what God later demonstrated in his mighty power. Through his mighty power in bringing fire from heaven. Remember in consuming Elijah's uh, sacrifice. All the priests of Baal surrounded there. And God sent fire and consumed Elijah's sacrifice, thereby declaring, these are false gods, I am the one true living God. And in fact, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ declares the same thing. Jesus Christ declares by His resurrection, I am the one true living God. There is no God besides me. Trinity, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one true living God. And God made it extremely clear in that final plague which He brought upon Egypt that though they all, Israel included, though they all deserved to die, they were saved by a substitute. They were saved by the blood of a lamb. The blood of a spotless lamb that was placed upon their doorposts. And as the death angel would pass over and see the blood of the lamb, he would not bring his judgment to bear upon that household. Dear ones, listen to the Lord describe His care for an undeserving nation like Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 33. If love does not speak these words, then we have no knowledge of what love is. Deuteronomy 33, verse 26 to the end of the chapter. There is, there is no one like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to help you and in His excellency on the clouds. The eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will thrust out the enemy from before you and will say, Destroy! Then Israel shall dwell in safety, the fountain of Jacob alone, in a land of grain and new wine, and his heavens shall also drop dew. 
Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your health and the sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall submit to you, and you shall tread down their high places. Underneath are the everlasting arms. It reminds one of the eagle who pushes his his young out of the nest. But until the young are able to fly on their own, the great strength and power of the eagle's wings are underneath to catch the young so that they do not crush themselves against the side of the mountain. And dear ones, God speaks to you, the new Israel, this morning, as He spoke to Israel of old, as He spoke to your fathers, who had wandered in the wilderness, who had been delivered from Egypt, your fathers, He speaks to you. Now, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, obey all my commandments. Obey what God has given you to obey. Israel of old was under the cruel oppression of Pharaoh, but you were at one time, dear ones, held captive to do the will of the devil. What he told you to do, you did. He was your master and your king, and he hated you. He only wanted your death with him in hell. Like Israel of old, you served and bowed before the altar of false gods like self and pleasure, and riches, and sex, and drugs, and work, and man-made gods. You gave up your love, your talents, your possessions, your life to serve these gods. And like Israel of old, you would have perished in that Egypt. In hell itself, dear ones, had the mercy of the Lord not reached down and taken you from those eternal flames and made you even his very own bride, the beloved of the Lord. As the spotless Lamb of God, He was sacrificed for you. His blood was shed for you, even as the blood of the Lamb was put over the, the doorposts. He took you from Egypt. He destroyed your enemies through His death and His resurrection. And He has provided for all your needs in this wilderness journey. Manna, quail, water, all that you need, the Lord has provided for you. And finally, He has promised to bring you into Canaan, into heaven itself, to be with Him, to enjoy His glories forever and ever. 
I ask you again, even as I asked you last day, is it such a hard request to love such a Savior? Was there ever an easier demand to fulfill in all of life to love such a God who has delivered us from the house of bondage Dear ones, have you left your first love? Revelation chapter 2. We are brought face to face with a very important issue. The Lord Jesus addresses the church of Ephesus. He says to them, I know your works, in verse 2 of chapter 2, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. You are orthodox. You hold to the truth. You have endured persecution for the sake of the truth. But there's one thing that I have against you. That you have left your first love. That love that you had for me at first. It no longer burns with passion within. It's distant. It's cold and calculated. The Lord Jesus says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. You see, dear ones, I am concerned that God has granted us, by His grace, I think, a great deal of understanding and knowledge of His truth about how we are to worship Him. But we could know the regulative principle inside and out and be practicing outwardly all that God commands us to do. But we would not be truly worshiping God if we have left our first love. I am convinced that the Lord calls us not to be like the nine lepers, but to be like the one who returned to give thanks to the Lord God. He who is forgiven much loves much. Do you know what God has forgiven in your life? Do you understand the depths of depravity that God has delivered you from and yet has taken and made you His very own bride and covenanted with you? to love you. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Our Father in Heaven, 
we are indeed humbled before you and even ashamed because Lord we have spitefully used you in your name we have not worshipped you with a heart of thanksgiving for all that you've done for us Lord our hearts have been cold and indifferent at times and Lord we seek your forgiveness we ask you our God as we begin studying the importance of worship and obeying your commandments in regard to worship that we would not neglect to understand that we are to worship you not simply from a sense of duty but from a sense of love Oh God, we pray that would in fact transform our worship into a glorious jewel in your sight, a gem that knows no value, that is priceless. Oh Father, we give to you ourselves, our lives. We give to you all that we are or ever hope to be. We belong to you. Oh God, make us faithful. Make us, Lord, those who even when we sin against you, Lord, are quick to flee to you, to repent of our sin, to turn from it, and to receive your mercy and your grace again and again and again. Oh Lord God, we thank you for that great deliverance that is ours through Jesus our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.